From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. The judge who sentenced James Todd for the rape and murder of Eurydice Dixon was asked to consider mitigating factors that included Todd's age, his autism diagnosis and his early guilty plea. Sarah Krasnerstein on the legal argument that preceded his sentence. This is the second instalment in a two-part series, a warning that this episode contains discussion of sexual assault and pornography. The man who raped and murdered Melbourne woman Eurydice Dixon, 20-year-old James Todd, pleaded guilty to following, attacking and strangling Ms Dixon as she walked home in June last year. Her death sparked an outpouring of emotion, anger, grief and vigils protesting violence against women. The judge said that he posed an unacceptable risk to the community. So, Sarah, James Todd pleaded guilty to the murder and rape of Eurydice Dixon at the end of that first police interview at Broadmeadows Police Station. And as such, there was no criminal trial. What happened in the courtroom when he was sentenced? So there was a sentencing hearing which took place over two and a half days in the Victorian Supreme Court. And the purpose of that hearing was to inform Justice Stephen Kay, who was sitting, about the circumstances of the offender and his offending. And so those two considerations, together with the legislation and sentencing principles, provided the basis on which he imposed sentence. Sarah Krasnerstein is a writer and an expert in sentencing law. She wrote about this case in the latest issue of The Monthly. So the purpose was not to determine Todd's guilt, which was not an issue, but rather to determine what sentence he should be receiving. In a trial, you're trying to prove beyond reasonable doubt guilt or innocence. The sentencing hearing is different. It's a little bit more pragmatic to reflect the fact that factors in aggravation and factors in mitigation aren't so clearly cut. Sometimes the same consideration can point in two ways. And so it's really about informing the judge about all of these circumstances so that she or he can get a clear picture of the offender before the court and what would best serve the interests of justice, and the safety of the community. So what were the mitigating factors that were presented and considered in Todd's case? Well, the strongest considerations in favour of Todd were his age, his very early guilty plea, his lack of prior convictions, and perhaps his diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. First amongst those considerations was his youth. Youth is strongly mitigating, both at common law and under our statutory scheme. We define a young offender as anyone under 21 years at the time of sentence, and the presumption that kicks in in those circumstances is that their rehabilitation should be the primary consideration over deterring them from acting in that way again by being very punitive. However, where the degree of criminality is very high... So the seriousness of the harm that they caused and their responsibility for it is so great, that presumption can be displaced and the youth can actually take a back seat to other considerations that need to be prioritised. Let's talk a little bit about the psychological evidence that was given at that sentencing hearing. 
Todd was assessed by experts for the defense and for the crown, and they were both experienced clinicians. So Dr. David Thomas was the defense expert. He's a consultant psychiatrist with the Victorian Institute for Forensic Mental Health. And Professor James Ogloff was the Crown's expert. He's a forensic psychologist and the director of psychological services and research at the Victorian Institute for Forensic Mental Health. So they both agreed that Todd suffers from sexual sadism disorder and that that drove his offending. They disagreed on the extent to which his other diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, which included some impairment of his functional language, also impacted the offending. Both agreed from the outset and were very clear that there's no causal link per se between autism and offending. The vast majority of individuals with autism do not offend. But Thomas's assessment was that Todd's autism interacted with the sexual sadism disorder to result in the offending because it made him more rigid in pursuing these dark fantasies and less likely to desist from them. On the other hand, Ogloff, for the Crown, concluded that Todd was sufficiently high-functioning that it was really the sexual sadism disorder and not his autism. That was a relevant consideration. And they both differed, too, on his prospects of rehabilitation. So there, there were subtle points of difference, but they were very important. What is a sexual sadism disorder? Sexual sadism disorder is a paraphilia. And paraphilias are conditions in which sexual pleasure depends on fantasizing about and engaging in extreme sexual behavior. Sexual sadism disorder is characterized by deriving sexual pleasure through causing, witnessing, or fantasizing about a non-consenting individual's pain. So both experts agree that it's not possible to treat the paraphilic interest underlying the disorder. It wasn't like a mental illness and it wasn't something that had a lot of gray area like the autism spectrum disorder as it manifested in, in Todd. So part of the defense also concerns what's called a theory of mind deficit. Are you able to talk through what a theory of mind deficit is? So there was a lot of discussion about this concept of theory of mind generally and how Todd experienced it specifically. Theory of mind is basically the concept that not everybody is experiencing the same circumstances in the same way. We have different access to information and we have different feelings and reactions. So it's the ability to understand that someone else might be having a different emotional experience to the same shared reality. And the defense was interested in asking uh, Dr. Thomas whether Todd had any theory of mind deficits, whether he was able to have this empathetic imagination that could allow him to both know and to care about other people having different experiences rather than some kind of inherent inability to see that and to concentrate instead only on his own experience. Again, both experts had different takes on his ability in that respect. The expert for the defense found that he was very limited in that empathetic imagination, whereas Professor Ogloff found that, no, he, he really did have the ability to understand differences. There might have been some functional impairment, but it was quite subtle. He had relationships with his girlfriend and his friends. He had genuine love for his family. And so he was able to appreciate other people having different experiences. The greater argument in relation to theory of mind was that his inability to kind of appreciate others' experience made him somehow less morally culpable in his offending because he couldn't appreciate the impact of what he was doing on Dixon as the victim. 
ultimately, Justice Kay found that was not the case because the inflicting of emotional and physical harm was key to this fantasy that he had been developing over a long period of time and his own emotional investment in that fantasy. It was a fantasy in which he was always in control and it would always end with the rape and murder of a female victim. So that was the porn that he was watching. He was watching you know, what's called snuff porn where the victim is murdered at the end, rape porn, murder porn, and... In all of those scenarios, the distress of the victim is key. It's not something that happens without his knowledge. So in other words, because his paraphilia relied on his understanding the pain that somebody else was experiencing, there must be some empathetic element to it because the arousal is predicated on the understanding of somebody else's pain. Exactly. It's it's key to it. In many ways, his way of thinking, his obsessions, the readiness the ease with which he could find videos to satisfy those particular obsessions is is not unusual. In terms of the way he presents in the courtroom, you know, you wouldn't find him particularly threatening. He's not the kind of man who would stand out in a tram or at the pub or, you know, walking down the street. And you go to enough of these hearings and you see that many of these men have that kind of normalness in common. And I find that to be particularly terrifying, that there's nothing that makes them stand out in our social settings. We'll be right back. This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. It's the essential account of the week in politics, culture and news. When you read the Saturday paper, you don't need to read anything else. Subscribe today from just $2.10 per week. Visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. The Saturday Paper. The whole story. As a a. 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Sarah, what did the psychiatrist assessing Todd for the prosecution find about the severity of his autism spectrum disorder and how that related to the crime? Professor Agloff found that Todd had very high-functioning autism and that while he did suffer from certain impairments, they would have been very difficult for most people to detect. He said there were many areas which led him to that conclusion. He engaged well in the clinical interview that he had with Ogloff, as well as with the police. And there were statements from people that knew Todd saying that he had very normal relationships with them, normal sense of humor. He was someone they came to for advice. There were no red flags in those kind of social relationships that let them know that there was something wrong. There was evidence that in childhood he had more rigidity around certain behaviors 
but it looked like over time they had either ameliorated or he had become more proficient at being able to control them. There were several mitigating factors in James Todd's defence, including his age, including the lack of prior offences and his early guilt plea. Can you speak to his background and to his family life and how that was argued as a mitigating factor? There were two things that were emphasised in relation to the Todd family home. There was a video of the police walkthrough that had been filmed when they executed the search warrant. And that wasn't shown to the media, but it was seen by the court. And it was described by Todd's counsel on the plea in mitigation. And what he described was circumstances of extreme squalor, extreme neglect. So it was a physical environment from very early childhood of chaos and real dirt and very distressing and destabilizing for any child, yet alone a child with autism. On top of that, and perhaps even more important, was the emotional environment of the home. There was evidence given from Dr. Thomas that Todd's mother said... um, It had gotten that bad when she became depressed, and Todd had replied, no, it's always been like this. As to the causes of that home life, we really left to speculation. There was not much information given about either of the parents or the circumstances there. How is Todd eventually sentenced in light of all that? So what he ended up finding was that the seriousness of this offending, that is specifically the harm that Todd caused, which is the greatest in our criminal calendar, murder, and his moral culpability for that harm was so egregious, being motivated by his sexual desire, a sexual desire that fed off someone's fear and his own violence, that he couldn't make enough of an allowance for those mitigating considerations not to impose a life sentence on this 20-year-old offender. The offending by you was totally and categorically evil. Your conduct and your intentions and motivation struck at the very heart of the most basic values of a decent, civilised society. He did find that Todd's autism played some role in mitigating his moral culpability. He said that the autism was responsible for the obsessional level of attachment to these fantasies of rape and murder... He found that Todd had spared the secondary victims, the family, friends, the trauma of having to go through a trial by virtue of his guilty plea. He found that his home life did have some impact. Kay said that you're not to be sentenced as a person who had the advantages of a normal, stable home life. And he found that while he couldn't express remorse in an emotionally thick, rich way, he did feel it even if it was only mostly intellectual, that there was some remorse there. But on balance, it really wasn't enough to result in the type of sentence where it could have been anything less than a life sentence. And what was Todd like as he was receiving the justice's sentence to hear from from Justice Kaye? He remained the same throughout all of his hearings. I mean, he largely sat there with his eyes shut or kind of at half-mast. He didn't look directly around the courtroom. He very rarely looked towards the bench, and that was largely unchanged when he was receiving the sentence. So he was cooperative. There wasn't any kind of aggression emanating from him. And if anything, he was just very quiet and almost like he was sucking himself into himself so as to not be there. 
And Sarah, for you in the courtroom, was there any conflict in your feelings between you as a sentencing law expert and you as an individual? For me, there was less of a tension here than I otherwise would have expected, less for punitive or emotive reasons, although, of course, I feel those very strongly as well. I feel a great identification with Dixon's circumstances. On the other hand, I felt at times a really startling compassion for this now-grown autistic child growing up in those circumstances who went on to commit this crime and throw away his life and throw away her life. So you have all of those conflicting emotional reactions in the courtroom. For me, the predominant consideration was all of the evidence about his risk of reoffending. The evidence here was that if this is the first offense that we see from an offender this young, it speaks only to their dangerousness. And so being realistic about how this sexual sadism disorder can be treated, if at all, it's more about a sentence that can guarantee to the best of the justice system's ability the safety of women going forward. What response was there from Eurydice Dixon's family after the sentence was handed down? Her father, Jeremy, made a brief statement outside of court. He was surrounded by his other children and their family and family friends. And he said that he was never going to comment on the sentence, whatever it was, but that he hoped that Todd gets better and realizes what he has done. And he expressed his, his sorrow for the people that love Todd. What I'd wish for James Todd and what I believe Eurydice would wish is that he gets better and realizes what he's done. I, I extend my sympathy, my sincere sympathy for those who love him. Uh, it's a terrible tragedy all around. And then he's made a point of saying Dixon should be remembered for, you know, her wit and her humor and her kindness and not her death. And it was such a dignified and beautiful moment from a place of unimaginable pain. Sarah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. From the Saturday paper comes The Food, a free weekly newsletter featuring curated recipes from some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle and Karen Martini. Cook what they cook by subscribing today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Elsewhere in the news, lawyers for the Murdoch newspapers have lodged a case in the High Court saying the police raid on journalist Annika Smithhurst's home was unconstitutional. The case argues that the raid contradicted an implied freedom of political communication. The submission says that the laws which triggered the raid apply to material that is, quote, merely embarrassing to the government. And Scott Morrison has defended the appointment of Deborah Ralston to his retirement income inquiry review. Ralston heads the Alliance for a Fairer Retirement System and has previously backed the idea of making superannuation voluntary 
and campaigned against Labor's franking credit reforms. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you Wednesday.